If you have your Bibles, would you open please to the book of the Psalms? And we'll go to Psalm 111, very well-known psalm. Let's take some thoughts out of here this morning that we hope will help us in our walk with the Lord. Psalm 111 says, praise ye the Lord. (laughs) We could stop there and we're doing pretty good. Praise ye the Lord. We have a command here to do something. A command to do something that should be as automatic as breathing for the Christian. Should be something that comes out of us with such spontaneity that people are even surprised uh, by it, sometimes shocked by it. And I think that happens when we really do begin to praise the Lord. There are a couple of terms that we want to think about today, and we're going to read the rest of this, uh, this psalm in a moment, but we want to think about the terms praise and worship. Many times those are thrown together, and I think in a lot of people's minds they even may be considered to be the same thing. While they are very, very, very closely linked, they are not exactly synonymous. They're not 100% the same thing. Let me make a couple of statements, and then we're gonna, well, I'll try to back them up as we go through. Praise without worship is hypocrisy. That's strong, right? Praise without worship is hypocrisy. And worship is impossible to do well, at least, to do fully without praise. What are we talking about? I think we all understand the word praise in its most general sense. If I want to talk well about someone. I want to say something good about someone. I am praising them. The Bible doesn't necessarily take us out of that simple idea when it says, praise ye the Lord. We are to speak well of him. That's the simple term for it. Worship goes beyond praise. Praise is a wonderful thing, but worship goes beyond that. The idea of worship, and we have a lot of different uh, words in the original languages, both in Hebrew and in Greek in our Bible that are translated into the word worship or something similar to that, some form of that idea. And the idea there is almost always the concept of bending the knee before someone, giving reverence to someone, giving our obedience to someone or something. So you can see there's a slight difference. Praise is talking good about someone, and worship is, shall we say, doing something about it. (laughs) I can praise anyone, but I can only worship God. I can praise you if you have some qualities that are worth praising, but I will not worship you, okay? I'm sorry if that offends you, but I, I will not be worshiping you, not today, not ever. There's only one who's worthy of our worship, and we should definitely praise him. As I said, praise without worship is hypocrisy. God himself spoke to the people in, in, in the Old Testament times, to the Jewish people, and said, with your lips you draw near unto me, but your heart is far from me. You might say, I am a child of God, but your actions do not back that up. You can praise without worshiping. But if you will be brought to a, to a place of real worship, if you will be brought to a place of bending your knee before a holy God, well, one of the good ways to get there is to start by praising him. The psalmist says this, praise ye the Lord. He said, I'll praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright 
and in the congregation. No matter where I am, he says, spreading out amongst the situations that he might be dealing with uh, there in Israel. He said, I'm going to praise him in every occasion. I will also do it with my whole heart. I will do it with everything in my being. And then he goes on to, to, to expound on some of the reasons, some of the things for which he will praise the Lord. And I think they're good examples for us as well. The works are the, of the Lord are great. Would anyone deny that? Would anyone deny, looking around at creation, that the works of the Lord are great? It's a good starting point, isn't it? It's a wonderful starting point if we're going to talk about this great, great God that he made everything. And his works are great. And they are sought out, it says, of them that have pleasure therein. There's an interesting phrase there. Uh, in the in the original language too about having pleasure it's seeking something out time and time and time again uh, any of, if any of you I know some of you do any of you hunters don't raise your hands I don't want to embarrass yourself <laughs> because then I might have to ask you if you're successful hunters and that would be a different story many times right <laughs> but hunters will look for places where the game has come very frequently right? They will watch for places. They will go out before the, the season begins and they'll look for runs and, and paths where, where they're well trodden by the, by the beast that they intend to kill someday. And they're sought after. Uh, they're seeking after a spot that's well sought after by the game. This place, a lot of deer come here. I want to come back here because I want to kill a deer, whatever the animal might be. And that animal has sought that place out for some reason. It might be leading him to something, or it might be right there. There's something available to him that, that uh, is good for him. And so this is the idea that we have here. Uh, we, we forget sometimes to praise the Lord for the simple things. We forget sometimes to raise our heads from our daily lives and look around us at what God has done. This is for everyone. Everyone in the world should praise God for his wonderful creation, his great works. I mean, even if you don't believe in God, look around you and at least be thankful that you live in this beautiful world, right? <laughs> and those of us who know where it all came from, it should just be in our face constantly. It should be a motive constantly for us to praise the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 3 to talk about his work. He, he drops down from his works to his work. And he said his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endureth forever. The wording here explains itself to us a little bit. And he talks about the great works of God that are worthy of praise. But then he says there's one specific work and it has to do with righteousness. There's a work here that has to do with God's righteousness. We praise him because he's righteous. That's good. That's good. I mean, he is. And that's important. Uh, it's important to know that God is completely holy. It's important to know that we have a God who's completely trustworthy, who's completely faithful, who will never lie to us, who will never disappoint us, who will never uh, lead us down a wrong path. These are great things and things that ought to be praised. But when we look at the idea of righteousness here, we understand that we in ourselves do not have it. If you say to me today, I am holy, I am complete, I've never sinned in my life, I will probably say I don't believe you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a truth from the Bible, but it's also something I believe is fairly self-evident. We know that we're all sinners. So what is he talking about here? There is a work here that has to do with his righteousness and a righteousness that endures forever. 
Those who put their faith in what God has done, the Bible tells us, are made the righteousness of God. It's not that I become perfect in this life. It's not that I cease to ever do anything wrong, to ever sin. But I, before God, stand justified and made holy and made righteous by the work that He has done. His work. Not my work. Not my works. Not anything of my ability. Not my, my wonderfulness, as great as that is. <laughs> There's nothing there that will bring me righteousness. He says his work is honorable. It is to be praised. It is praiseworthy. It is worthy of all honor, this work. And it is glorious. That has to do with it shines. It's bright as the sun. It is glorious. And this righteousness, this work of righteousness that he does, when God does something, he does it right. (laughs) And when God saves, and he makes it very clear all through the Bible that he does not take it back. I had the opportunity to uh, sit with someone this week who was struggling with the idea of death, also struggling with the idea of assurance of being a child of God. And I, and I love to go to John chapter 10 and, and discuss there the idea of the good shepherd. And you go down through that passage and at, at one point Jesus said, my sheep are in my hand. No man can take them out. And oh, what a beautiful image. He, he adds to that and he says, they're in my father's hand too. Nobody's going to take them out. I'm doubly safe in God the Father and God the Son. And then later on, the Bible explains to us that I'm, that I'm also sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. There's not one possibility that a person who's become a child of God can unbecome a child of God. This work of righteousness that he does endures forever. Can you tell me? Can you tell me when your child can cease to be your child? That's an impossibility in the physical realm. You may not like them sometimes, but they're still yours, okay? Don't drop them off on my doorstep. (laughs) I raised mine, all right? You may not like them, but they're still yours. There may be days that God doesn't care too much for you too, but you're still his if you ever once were. His work of righteousness endures forever. Verse 4 says, He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. It seems to me the progression of thought here goes from the general wonderful works of God down to a specific work, that work of righteousness that he does in us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And now he talks about his his compassion and all of these things in these works that need to be remembered. Have you ever... As a Christian, I'm talking to Christian people, you know you're born again, going to heaven. Have you ever had God do anything for you? I think we forget about it sometimes, don't we? When the hard times come, it's very easy to forget the things that God has already done for us. The book of 1 Samuel talks about a time when Israel is is facing an ominous enemy the great Philistine army, and and God sends a great victory. He sends a great thunderous noise which which confuses them, and Israel gains the victory, and afterwards they set up a rock. Just a rock. But the rock has a name. (laughs) The name is one of those names that's come to 
be a little weird in our society, I guess. We think of, we think of uh, uh, Charles Dickens' uh, story most of the time when we think of this, this name, but the name is Ebenezer. <laughs> I'm not talking about Scrooge, all right? But the rock was called Ebenezer. What a beautiful, beautiful Hebrew word that is. And I'll put it into my English. It says, so far God hadn't let me down. To this point, God's never failed me. Can you not look back in your Christian life at so many moments? Can you not remember those even when you're in the hardest of times, when you're in the greatest of trials? Can you not look back at some moment and say, Ebenezer, up to that point, God never failed me. Here I am at another trial. What makes me think he'll fail me now? What God does, he does well, and he does right. Verse 5 says, he's given meat to them that fear him, and he will ever be mindful of his covenant. In other words, God provides what we need as much today as he did back when we placed that last Ebenezer stone. God provides for us even uh, in the presence of our enemy. He spreads a table before us and our cup runs over with the blessings of God, does it not? Even in the presence of the greatest enemy that we can even consider. As a hospice chaplain, I deal a lot with death and I deal a lot with these ideas and, and, I, and I love to bring people who believe in Jesus Christ to this point. Understand that you're facing the biggest enemy in this physical life that we have. It's called death. But you know what? God's even got everything ready for that moment. The worst possible scenario that you can think of, God has not forgotten about it. God has not failed to prepare for it. He has prepared for you a table in the presence of your enemy. And your cup will still be able to flow over with his blessings if you'll just sit down and eat at his table. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. We fail in our promises to God sometimes, don't we? God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do that. This, this time it'll be different. This time it'll be different. Have you ever said that? Or at least, you know, something like that in your mind. And you step out, and for some reason, because you're a sinner... Is why, because you have a sin nature and you're a human being, you, you fail again. Ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Doesn't happen to God, thankfully. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. Whatever that covenant He is, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and God covenanted with them in a conditional way to start with. Don't eat of that and everything will be good. There's a tree there, you leave that alone, everything's fine. Well, they didn't. Everything wasn't so good. They died spiritually that very day as God had promised. And then God came along afterwards and he made a, another covenant with them, didn't he? Only this one had a very large unconditional element to it. He said, I'm going to do some things. In the midst of the curses, he said, I also am going to send one born of the woman, the seed of the woman, and he's the one that's going to take care of the serpent. 
ultimately. And he didn't say that that was conditional on anything I do or that you do. He said, I'm going to do this. And he did. And he did. Jesus Christ came and his heel was uh, hurt. <laughs> he, was, he, was, uh, he was very severely wounded at the hand of the devil and his people. And yet on the third day, on the third day, he crushed the head of the enemy by rising victorious over him, over sin, over death itself. And one day we'll see the full fulfillment of that. Verse, verse 6 says, He has shown his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. In other words, this is continuing on with the idea, don't worry about it if you don't see the way. Okay? If you don't see how this is going to work out, well... Again, think back a little bit. The people of Israel were coming into the land of Israel, the land of promise, finally. They've been out there in the wilderness getting their backsides warmed up a little bit because they didn't obey. Sorry if I'm getting too graphic. Um, they, were, they were being chastised of the Lord. How about that? Is that a little more proper? They were being chastised of the Lord for, for 40 years out in the wilderness, and they finally they come across the, into the promised land, and there's a lot of things going on. But one thing that happened was they didn't have to go in and plant and wait to reap a harvest. Isn't that something? It, what would have happened? It would have been tough, wouldn't it? I kind of think of the evolutionist, you know. I was watching a woodpecker this morning. And I, ha I just couldn't help it. I had to think about the evolutionist idea, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking of this poor bird, however many millions of years ago. And he smells something inside that tree, right? And he needs that. He doesn't, know, he doesn't know where else to go to get food right now, but there's something in there that he needs. But he's never pecked on a tree before because he hasn't evolved to this point yet, you see. I'm just, I mean, I'm just laying it out. Isn't that the way it is? They say they, they developed as long, all right? So the bird, and so the first time, I can imagine he probably got his bill stuck. He's like, boom, done, you know? <laughs> he's just hanging there by his bill. I don't know. I imagine things, whatever. <laughs> But my problem is, how did that stupid bird reproduce and make birds that could figure this whole thing out, you know? I mean, come on. A bird that can go... How did that evolve? Why would that evolve? I mean, come on. Does it even make any sense? I'm sorry, it doesn't. So what I'm thinking about here with this whole evolution idea and everything, too, is, is, is that's kind of the, the idea with with uh, the, the Jewish people, the Israeli people, as, as they come into the promised land. What if they had gone in there and, you know, and, and, and had to plant a harvest? What are they going to plant with? They haven't evolved enough to have seeds and things. You know, they, didn't, they weren't in the land. They had no preparation time. They didn't have time to plow the fields and, and plant the seed and, and go through all of that and then wait right? They're going to wait six months or maybe less, whatever, four months, make it easy. Man, wait four months before they get a harvest. What are they going to do for four months? They're going to go hungry. Except, except for God got involved. And God sent them in at harvest time. When the Canaanites had already done all that work, you see. That's the way God does things. That's the way God prepares things for us. That's the way God sets things up. That's the God we're talking about. That's the God that we're looking at praising. 
Is he not worthy of praise when he takes care of the details for us like that? Verse 7 says, the works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. You can always trust God. Verse 8, they stand forever and ever. They are done in truth and uprightness. He sent, in verse 9, redemption unto his people. And we could just camp on that word for a while, couldn't we? Obviously, he's speaking to a Jewish group. He's speaking to an Old Testament group. And obviously, he has in mind the redemption of the people of Israel uh, several times, but specifically uh, out of the hands of, hands of the Egyptians. And what a wonderful thing that was. But how that relates to us is so marvelous as well because we were in bondage to sin. We were, as we sang, enemies of God. And yet somehow, I know how. I'm not saying I don't know. Somehow, okay, somehow, now I'm seated at his table. That is one of the most impactful thoughts to me that I think I could ever... Somebody put it in their music and I really appreciate it because I was his enemy. You were his enemy. The Bible's clear on that. And yet, he prepares a table for us in the presence of every enemy. And he allows us to sit with him. And one day, there's going to be a a big supper. It's going to be a big one up in heaven. And all those who have been redeemed, all of those who've had the price of their sin taken care of by what Jesus did on the cross are going to slide their feet right up under that wedding table and feast with the Lamb of God. We're going to be His bride. Can you praise Him for that? Ooh. If you can't praise God this morning, I hope we're seeing some ways that'll get you there. I hope you can find a way. He sent redemption to his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverent is his name. And then we get to worship in the very last verse. <laughs> we get to worship. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I. If you're here today and you're not one of these people who knows for sure that you're going to be at that, that feast at the end and, and you, you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ has taken away your sin, I, I'm, I'm not here to try to just scare you. I'm just not. I, I, don't, I don't really like to do that. But there are things that probably are bothering you, <laughs> I imagine. I can just imagine if you have doubts about that, you probably wonder what really is going to happen. How is this going to play out? What happens to me when I die? You should have a little fear of the Lord in that sense. There should be a reverent moment of reflection, of saying, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I do still need something. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That phrase comes up about four times in the Proverbs and once here in the Psalms, and it's, it's just as simple as it can be. <laughs> I, whatever you want to think of as fear, I, I, you know, the wrath of God abides on those who do not accept what He has done to save them. That's a fact. 
I'm not going to get into all the details today. I don't even understand all the details of it. But I do know it's a fact. The wrath of God abides on those who do not accept what he has done for them because you're throwing your fist in his face and saying, I do not need you. I'll do it myself. That should cause you some fear in your own heart. It just should. I can't imagine it not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once you get to that point of saying, maybe there's something I really do need to contemplate. Maybe there's something I need to think about. You're beginning to have a little wisdom. (laughs) You're beginning to think right. The Bible calls it repentance, and that means changing the way you're thinking. Get rid of your stinking thinking and come over here to do what God says. All right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. There's the worship. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him every way you can. Speak well of God in every situation that you can. Praise him in song. Did you know that God sings? Don't look at me like I'm crazy. You may have skipped over this verse, or you may know this verse better than I did, but I I didn't remember this verse until very... I didn't quite catch it until recently. Zephaniah chapter 3 talks about God singing. (laughs) <laughs> He's singing in, in joy over his people. And God himself was singing. Isn't singing a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful way to praise God? I mean, really, it's just, it's an expression. It's a natural, so, so I've heard people say that, you know, you shouldn't sing in church or, or singing is not whatever. I don't, I don't even know what, I don't know where they get it. <laughs> but if God sings, hmm, if God sings, I think I can sing right? Not well, but I can do it. (laughs) Uh, Music is just a wonderful way to praise the Lord. It's not the only way though, is it? We come together and we sing together and we praise the Lord together and that encourages our hearts and it, it, it focuses our minds and our attentions on the Lord. But if it's praise without worship, it's hypocrisy. I'm still going to say that. I'm still going to stand on that. (laughs) Have you ever met anybody? This is, a, this is a phrase I didn't invent. And, and if it offends you, I'm sorry, but I thought it was kind of cute. You ever met anybody that you would call oversaved? <laughs> you know exactly where I'm going. <clears throat> I'm not sure. If, I don't, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be critical of people like that. I don't know. Fine. I want you to praise the Lord. <laughs> I do. Sometimes it just seems like it comes out too flippantly, doesn't it? Right? And, and maybe they don't mean it that way. Maybe I'm being judgmental when I say that, and I apologize if I am. But the, but the big question is, what happens afterwards? <laughs> what happens when you walk out the door of, of this place? You're, you're in here praising God, and I mean, woo, you know, hallelujah. And you step outside, and God stays in here. Praise without bending the knee in obedience to him, without doing his commandments, is hypocrisy. I don't think God's interested in that, do you? I know he's not. The Bible says he's not in a number of different ways in a number of different places. They that worship God, Jesus said, that worship not praise. Notice, John chapter 4, woman at the well, 
She says, are we supposed to worship in this place over here in Samaria? Or like you Jews say in Jerusalem, Jesus said no. (laughs) Don't you love when people answer a question like that? (laughs) Is it this or is it that? No, (laughs) because there was a third option, right? (laughs) She said worship. She didn't say have a praise service. She said worship. Is our dedication to our God to be in this temple or in that temple? Is our worship to God to be with this kind of music or that kind of music? Is our worship of God to be with this structure of service or that structure of service? And Jesus said, no. Those are forms of praise. That's fine. You can figure that out <laughs> on your own. And, 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 and each church has an opportunity to figure out their style of praise and worship together. But when you come right down to worship, there's only one place that that can take place, and that's in your heart, because God is a spirit. He doesn't need a building. He doesn't need a a format. He doesn't need a style for us to worship him. He is a person, and he is a spirit, and if we're going to worship him, if we're going to bow our knee before him and lie prostrate before him and cry out to him, you are my king. That has to be done in heart. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. You can talk about your styles and your formats and your, I don't care. If the Bible isn't specific about it, just do what you, the way you want to do it. I don't care. You know? Again, as a church, we have to figure out as a group how we're going to do certain things. But each church does it their way too. Go do it. Do it your way. I don't care. But when it comes to worship, there's only one thing to do. And that's to place your heart on the altar of God and say, You, sir, you, my Lord and my King, you're in charge. And you praise him without doing that, I can't come up with a better word. Hypocrisy. Do we do it all of us at times? Sure, I understand. Do I? Yeah. I'm not saying I'm perfect in it. But what is our focus in this? What is our focus even in our praise? Is it not to lead us to a place where worship is deeper? Where our dedication to the Lord is deeper? Is it just something we do, say, sing, declare, whatever? Or is it something that's deep down in our heart and we do understand that Jesus Christ is King of Kings? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't stop at the beginning, though. It's a good place to start, the beginning. Don't stop there. Get a good understanding, too. (laughs) A good understanding of all they that do his commandments. And this whole cycle just comes right back around, doesn't it? We praise him because our heart is bowed before him in worship. And it brings us right back to what? Enduring praise. His praise endures forever. That kind of praise is not hypocrisy. That kind of praise is an expression of our heart. And again, you go with your forms and and, and, and styles and whatever you want to talk about. It doesn't really matter that much to me. One day, as I said, we're all going to be around that table in heaven. And in, in, uh, (coughs) in Revelation, 
chapter 4, we have some picture of the praise that goes on around the throne room of God at that time. And then chapter 5 takes us even farther. If you want to go there, it's in chapter 5 of Revelation. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. And it said, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth (laughs) then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing (laughs) And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Great, one of the greatest praise scenes you'll ever see in your life. It put the Pentecostal churches to shame. <laughs> it put us to shame for sure. <clears throat> but one day we're going to be there if we belong to Him. And we're going we're gonna to see that, but we've been given this wonderful glimpse into, we've seen it in the past. We've seen praise and worship throughout the history in the Bible and throughout our history <laughs> as people of God. And we see a picture here of praise in, in the future, in the, in the end of that praise. The end of that kind of praise that really recognizes who Jesus is ends up in worship. Not empty, hollow words, but a falling down. These are the elders. These are somehow bigwigs up there in this situation, right? These are elders. But they fall down on their faces before the one, the one, the one who is worthy of our worship. Does your life reflect today the worthiness of Christ in the way you worship him? I'm not talking about just in your praise, although it should be reflected there as well. That's a good starting point, right? But is your life filled with the wonder of who he is and the understanding of who he is to the point where your decisions are made on your knees before him? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we can come boldly into that very throne room of God. We can enter in boldly because Jesus' blood has opened the way. And nothing can prevent us from coming to our Father and asking for help in time of need. Is that the life we live, dependent upon Him, completely devoted to what He has for us to do? Is that our worship? Are we guilty of empty praise? Praise ye the Lord! 
You're commanded to do so. (coughs) But if there's no worship to follow, it's pointless. It's sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. It's empty. It's just noise. Should we make some good noise to the Lord? Yeah, absolutely. Joyful noise to the Lord. Amen. Let's do it. Let's do it with all our heart. Let's praise Him with all of our heart everywhere we go. Let's talk good about God and about our Lord Jesus Christ at every opportunity. Let's take those opportunities to declare who He is and how wonderful He is and how wonderful His works are and how wonderful His glorious work of redemption is. Let's do that and let's live a life on our knees before Him, worshiping Him who is worthy of all of this. Let's do that. I'm going to have uh, Pastor Art come and we're going to sing a song that we already sang to close our service this morning. Song of praise. Jesus, thank you. Sometimes it's just that simple, isn't it? Sometimes we just have to stop and remember what God has really done for us and just say, Jesus, Thank you. And as we do, let's bow our hearts before him this morning. If anyone here is not sure about some of these things that I'm talking about, you're not sure that you're part of that group that's going to be able to participate in that wonderful supper with him in heaven, that you're, you're not sure you're going to be there at the throne room when all of this praise is going on. You're not sure right now if you're truly a child of God. You're going to be standing over here with other members of our staff at this door and we're going to be waiting for you to come and talk with us and we're not going to chastise you, we're not going to be harsh with you, all we want to do is be able to take the Bible, not our ideas, but what the Bible says and make it as clear as we can from what the Bible says, how you can know for sure this day that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ, that you're a child of God. Would you just step over there, please, as we're singing this song. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ and we're sure of it, you just contemplate whatever the Lord has laid on your heart as we sing.